It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But MIDI Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Traditions can be sort of weird. And I'm not talking about family traditions. Those are super fun and important. I mean like the weird cultural traditions that we're supposed to have but don't really observe. Like seriously, when was the last time you actually planted a tree on Arbor Day or displayed the American flag in your front yard on Flag Day? Culture can be a pretty fluid thing, can't it? What we celebrate one year, we forget the next. My name is Josh, and this is Obscure History. I went to a tiny high school. I'm not going to tell you which high school or where it is because I'm unreasonably afraid of getting doxxed, but the entire town was just a gas station, a tavern, a drive through restaurant, a church, the school, and a swimming pool. It's one of those places that you might accidentally drive past if you're not watching for it carefully. Small communities like that certainly have their own personalities. I have lived in a couple of these tiny little communities in my life, and I am always amazed by the traditions that they have. Some of my favorite childhood memories are of these quirky festivals and local holidays. There was one particular festival that I always loved. It was like part classic car show, part basketball tournament, part street fair, 
but the best part was when a helicopter flew in and dropped a bunch of ping-pong balls onto Main Street. These ping-pong balls were all numbered and everybody scrambled to grab as many as possible. The numbers corresponded to a store in downtown and you'd have to look at your ping-pong ball and like cross-reference it against this like guide that they would hand out. One year I teamed up with my friends and my cousins and I collected every ping pong ball for the bookstore because they were offering like $5 store credit for each ball you turned in. And I ended up getting a really cool collection of Mark Twain's short stories that was published in the 1920s. I'm not really a huge Twain fan, but that book still sits on my vintage bookshelf. There's one local tradition that I don't have the same kind of fond memories for though. In my tiny little high school in the middle of very Protestant rural America, we weirdly had very significant May Day festivities. Each year, my school had the 8th graders wrap ribbons around the maypole with the seniors while the band played this jaunty springtime music. One senior girl would be selected as May Day queen, and she would get a silky sash and would get to sit on this, like, floral throne throughout the rest of the festivities. As the one drummer in our teeny tiny little band, I hated this day because I really didn't enjoy the music that we had to play on repeat throughout the entire festival. It was also a tradition for our biology teacher to tell us the pagan origins of the holiday, and I still remember the collective gasp that my class let out when he told us what the maypole represented and how our May Day festivities were actually sort of an ancient fertility ritual. In a weird way, it's one of my fondest high school memories. Just, I remember the stages of grief that we went through so quickly after finding out, like, shock, then rage, then laughter, all within just a couple of short minutes. I suspect that May Day is more of an agrarian holiday because I've literally never seen anyone celebrate it outside of farm country. As is the case with many of our modern holidays, May Day is a sort of combination of many pagan festivals that was eventually co-opted by the church. The earliest known May celebrations appeared with the Floralia, which was a festival to honor Flora, the Roman goddess of flowers, during the Roman Republic era. There was also the Mayuma, which was a festival celebrating Dionysus and Aphrodite. It was held in a three-year rotation during the month of May. During the celebration of Floralia, rabbits and goats were released back into the wild, and people had a giant flower fight, tossing flower petals around like confetti. They also sacrificed wheat to flora, and had various games and competitions. While Floralia sounds kind of fun, Mayuma is very different. According to the accounts of John Malalas, a 6th century scholar, Mayuma was a nocturnal dramatic festival held every three years and known as the Orgies, that is, the mysteries of Dionysus and Aphrodite. Historic records also tell us that Mayuma was sponsored by the government and consisted of three consecutive days of all-night public revels. This makes a lot of sense as the festival was dedicated to the goddesses of wine and love. Eventually, Sometime around the 10th century, the Roman Catholic Church took these old pagan holidays and decided to make far less debaucherous versions of them and dedicated them to St. Walpurga. And since then, May Day has been largely forgotten. Some denominations of the Catholic Church still use Walpurgis Night to commemorate various saints, but for the most part, this tradition has lost all of its meaning culturally. Except for, apparently, in rural farm country. 
But that seems totally natural, right? We're always evolving culturally. Christmas went from being illegal in the United States to being one of the most important cultural traditions that we have. On the first American Arbor Day in 1872, it's estimated that over one million trees were planted. Now it's largely irrelevant. Labor Day used to be marked with raucous parades, but now it's only anticipated with anxiety as it generally marks the end of summer vacation season. This kind of cultural evolution extends beyond our holidays, though. Obviously, there are some huge ones. We no longer use slave labor, people are allowed to marry whomever they choose, and the internet has completely revolutionized how we spend our free time, make our money, and interact with the world around us. Those are the easy ones, though. It goes a lot deeper than that. Here are just a few examples that come to mind. A few generations ago, divorce was exceedingly rare, and today it is a commonly understood practice. It is only very recently that Americans are becoming open toward multi-generational living arrangements. When my grandparents were in their 20s, less than 10% of the total population had a college degree. And today, nearly 40% of Americans hold at least a bachelor's degree. In previous generations, children were expected to enter the workforce as early as possible, but today, they are generally only required to worry about their schoolwork and extracurriculars. If you want to get really intense about studying the fluidity of American culture, you can focus on things like music, art, and fashion. These aspects of our culture move at the speed of light. This is where you can get really lost. Just think about how much film has changed over the last few decades. I love classic horror movies like The Creature from the Black Lagoon, but if you were to compare the special effects from that movie to the special effects that your phone can generate on apps like Snapchat or TikTok, it is no contest. And the thing that blows me away is that to make those classic horror movies, an entire crew was required. Today, our phones can make some crazy special effects with just the push of a button. That access to such powerful creativity has certainly affected our culture. I imagine that there are far more children in the world today that want to be YouTubers or filmmakers than ever before, and that's due in large part to the accessibility of filmmaking tools. Similarly, fashion has changed quite a bit over the years as well. And, I would argue, so has our attitude towards it. You see, not so long ago, fashion was used as an overt way to establish class dominance. I'm sure you've heard the expression, no wearing white after Labor Day, but do you know where it comes from? In an incredible article written for Marie Claire, author Chelsea Peng says, In the late 19th century, long before you could wear jeans to a Michelin-starred restaurant, the society ladies were engaged in an invisible battle with the nouveau riche one that could only be won by subtle manipulation of fashion. The you-can't-wear-white-after-Labor-Day rule was created to separate the old-money elitists from the new-money group. The idea is that the elite could escape into the country during the summer months and could thereby wear their white clothes without worrying about getting them dirty from general city muck. While there are some who dispute this claim and instead argue that this arbitrary fashion rule was instead meant to signal the end of summer and the ushering in of fall, I'm a bit suspect of those claims. In fact, there was one fashion rule in the early 20th century that was so hotly contested, it led to bloodshed. 
But before we get to the bloodshed, let's take just a moment to hear from some sponsors. For the next 90 seconds or so, I'm going to play some ads, so sit tight, and when we get back, I'm going to tell you a tale about some fashion rules that went absolutely out of control. This episode was brought to you in part by Squadcast. In 2021, you either have a podcast or you want to have a podcast. And, unless you're an insufferable nerd like I am, you probably want to have a podcast with other people. The challenge is, as we are in a global pandemic, you might not be able to record in person, and we're all completely burnt out on Zoom and Skype. So let me tell you how Squadcast can help solve your problems. Squadcast is a remote content production platform that makes it super easy for podcasters to create high-quality video and audio remotely. You can connect with anyone, anywhere, at any time using their browser-based system. No apps to download, ever. Your video is also saved every 8 seconds to the cloud, so you're never going to lose your recording, and they always have a backup on hand. Your audio is recorded in separate tracks for easy editing, and you can have up to 10 people in a session. So whether your squad is a roving pack of unhinged bachelors, a delegation of girl bosses that take wine tasting a little too seriously, or some loose acquaintances that you've met on Twitter and want to interview for your show, Squadcast has the tools to help you make the content that you want to make. To learn about even more amazing features that Squadcast offers, Follow the link in my show notes to squadcast.fm to learn more today. Again, that's squadcast.fm to learn more today. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. We're back. So... At one point in our cultural history, people really, really cared about hats. 
but not just any hat. In the early 1900s, people were absolutely crazy for the straw hat. These hats were very round with a completely flat brim and a colorful ribbon. It is said that they were based on the kinds of hats that sailors traditionally wore. Originally, the hats were popular with children, and then women started to wear them, and finally, by the 1920s, everyone from Grandpa Jack all the way down to Baby Susan were wearing these things. These wonderfully popular hats fell under the same kind of arbitrary fashion rule as white clothes after Labor Day, though. Straw hats were specifically a summer hat. Their light and breathable material, as well as the wide, sun-blocking brim, made them perfect for those hot afternoons. However, they did little to aid a person's head during the winter when the air is frigid and wet. The fall and winter months belonged to the felt hat, which was much more dense and much more warm than the straw hat. This shift between straw and felt hats became so deeply ingrained in American culture that there were actually two unofficial holidays created for them. Felt Hat Day in the fall, and Straw Hat Day in the summer. Now that all seems pretty normal, but this tradition soon morphed into something entirely different. On Felt Hat Day, which was September 15th, the men trading on the stock market would all pull their straw hats off and stomp them into the ground at the end of the day. Due to the nature of their construction, straw hats were basically an annual purchase, so destroying them to signal the end of summer isn't necessarily as outlandish as it might seem at first. In fact, it was common for men who brought their straw hat onto the trading floor on the 16th to have their hat ripped off their head and stomped on the ground for them. Now, that's a bit off-putting, but it was a tradition held by a certain in-group. I'm sure that you and your coworkers or you and your friends have little traditions that you've developed that might seem foreign to outsiders but are totally normal for you. The problem is that this little tradition of pulling people's straw hats off and crushing them after the 15th of September eventually escaped the stock market trading floor and bled into regular society. September 13, 1922 was a sweltering day in New York City. The streets were even more packed than usual as people tried to enjoy the last few days of summer. Straw hats were everywhere. A group of teenagers looked out at the writhing crowds and decided that it might be fun to get an early jump on felt hat day. The group first targeted some factory workers running up, snatching their hats, tossing them onto the ground and mercilessly stomping them into the sidewalk. After causing some commotion but escaping unharmed, the teens decided to keep pushing their luck. They targeted a group of dock workers next, but things did not work out in their favor in this attack. The dock workers fought back. They weren't going to let some punk kids ruin their straw hats two days before they were going to do it themselves. And an all-out brawl ensued. Fists began flying in the crowded streets, sweeping teenagers, dock workers, and innocent passers-by into the fray. Adults were being assaulted by teenagers, teenagers were being assaulted by adults. It was pure pandemonium. The brawl grew so big that traffic was completely stopped along the Manhattan Bridge. The police tried to intervene and even made some arrests, but blood was in the water and the Straw Hat Riot of 1922 was just beginning. As the police would break up one brawl, another would spring up just a few blocks away. On 109th Street, 
A group of a dozen boys were seen chasing pedestrians with sticks, smashing as many straw hats as they could in their frenzy. On Amsterdam Avenue, police officer E.C. Jones claimed to have seen 1,000 teenagers swarming innocent people and destroying their hats in an uncontrolled mob. In the mayhem, a man named Harry Gerber was beaten so badly that he had to be hospitalized. The scene was chaos. One clever teen grabbed the straw hat off of the head of Detective Brudizo. Naturally, Detective Brudizo gave chase, but was stopped by a police officer named Sigmund Kahn, who thought he was just another angry adult trying to catch a teen and beat them publicly. After the two realized that they were both police officers who were desperately trying to maintain the peace, the boy was gone and all that remained of him was Detective Brudizo's squashed straw hat. Reports came in that young men had formed long lines along the streetcar tracks and were lunging towards the cars trying to grab people's hats as they rode by. Mobs of boys fashioned hooks on the ends of long poles and tried to snatch people's hats off at a distance as they walked by. People were being run over by vehicles in the street. They were being trampled underneath thousands of fleeing feet. Gangs of teenagers waited patiently outside of doorways, then surprise attacked older men when they passed through. It was pure insanity, and it lasted through the entire night and into the next morning. It seems that for all this mayhem, only eight boys were actually punished. Following the riot, the New York Tribune reported, Boys who were guided by the calendar rather than the weather, and most of all by their own troublemaking proclivities, indulged in a straw hat smashing orgy throughout the city last night. A dozen or more were arrested and seven were spanked ignominiously by their parents at the East 104th Street police station by order of the lieutenant at his desk. Even though the aftermath was jarring, it's sort of a miracle that things didn't end up worse. As far as I could find, there were only a couple of serious injuries. In reading newspapers from the days after the riot, I have to admit the eyewitness counts were harrowing. In the madness, a 10-year-old boy named John Sweeney was run over by an automobile driven by a man named John Monfort. The boy escaped with only a broken right leg and was sent to Bellevue Hospital for treatment, according to the September 16, 1922 issue of the New York Times. 25-year-old Harry Gerber that I mentioned before was shipped to Harlem Hospital for treatment after being beaten and kicked by a group of boys, but otherwise things turned out all right. Seven boys were caught and were publicly spanked in front of the police, and one boy was actually kept in jail overnight at the request of his elderly mother. The streets of New York City were covered in broken straw hats, but things weren't all that bad. New York City's hat stores actually took advantage of the riot and stayed open all night. They reported record sales during the riot. Straw hats were so deeply embedded in American culture that people thought it was completely reasonable to go buy another straw hat at like 10pm after getting their original straw hats destroyed by a gang of wild children. And to me, that is absolute madness. Interestingly, the Straw Hat Riot of 1922 was not the first Straw Hat Riot. It was simply the biggest and most consequential. 
The September 15, 1910 edition of the Pittsburgh Press reported that an organized demonstration against straw hats had occurred, where the police had to interfere on more than one occasion to protect straw-lidded pedestrians. They added that the demonstration was an outburst of the sheer exuberance of youth. And in what seems a bit prophetic and mildly racist, the Pittsburgh Press also speculated that no man likes to have his hat snatched. If the informality should become general, there will sure to be a number of obstinate gentlemen, most likely with English blood in their veins, who will coolly proceed to treat the fun-making as a physical assault and defend themselves in a manner which will spoil the fun for all concerned. Though straw hats were cultural mainstays, they faded in popularity in the years following the riot. In 1925, President Calvin Coolidge intentionally ignored Felt Hat Day and continued wearing his straw hat wherever and whenever he wanted. The New York Times ran the following headline, Discarded Date for Straw Hats Ignored by President Coolidge, and that was pretty much the end of straw hats in America. I mean, people still wear straw hats today, obviously, but straw hat culture has certainly died. And... Hat traditions, in general, are pretty much gone, and I think that's probably fine. I'm sure that we have our very own classist fashion traditions, but I'm far too ignorant to know about them. Frankly, I know nothing about fashion. In researching this episode, I was actually looking at some fashion trends, and it was extremely entertaining. Apparently, hoodies under a blazer are a thing right now, and so are, like, full-body jumpsuits and rain boots? I don't know. Maybe someday we'll have a riot because of a bunch of Zoomers deciding that we can't wear cropped sweaters after President's Day or something, but whatever the case, I'm sure that I will still be in my jeans and cardigans whenever the next fashion apocalypse comes upon us. Alright guys, we have reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening today, I appreciate all of you. Before I say goodbye for the day, uh, I need to let you know that today's episode was also brought to you in part by Canadian History X. Canadian History X is a wonderful Canadian history show hosted by Craig Baird. Each episode highlights a different city or event in Canadian history, and they are super well-researched. In fact, Craig is like going all across Canada right now researching these places in person, and I am both jealous and... uh, awestruck by his powers (laughs) uh craig has actually been a supporter of this show for a super long time so i would love if you went over and checked out canadian history x and if you like that he's also got other shows from john to justin coast to coast and canadia (laughs) canadia and canada's great war they are all super good insanely impressive and honestly balancing more than one show at a time is absolutely like unbelievable so hats off to craig Straw hats off to Craig. (laughs) He is a wonderful guy. His shows are wonderful, and I would appreciate it if you checked out his stuff today. Also, brief reminder, check out ObscureHistoryPod.com for transcripts, links for episodes, and for the merch store. As always, a a portion of our proceeds will go to UNICEF, and uh, I think for the next couple of weeks, you can actually get free shipping on orders over $45 with the code FREESHIP821. Also, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying my best to work out sort of a casual Thursday replacement 
but I'm not sure exactly what the structure is going to be yet. I want to make it something that I can sustain, and I want to make sure that the quality is there, so keep your ears open. One of my sort of prototype ideas right now is to have, like, footnotes for these episodes where, like, um, I can get into my sources a little bit and maybe share some of the little tidbits that didn't quite make it into the episode because there are always little bits of information that I would love to include that I just can't quite find the right way to get into the episode proper. Like, for example, on this episode, I thought it was really funny that... um, in, I believe it was the 1925 New York uh, Post or, uh, newspaper, uh, there was like a tiny little column about the Straw Hat Riot, and then literally one quarter of the page was an ad for Straw Hats. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. I wanted to just transcribe the entire ad to put it somewhere in the script for this episode, but I I couldn't. I just, I tried to work it in. It didn't work. It took away from the story. So I would love to put out like a companion episode for each of the regular episodes that has some of that really interesting stuff in it, because there's always things that I think are fascinating that I have to leave on the cutting room floor when I'm, you know, editing and recording the podcast. So keep your ears open for that. If you've got any ideas, be sure to let me know. Um, You can DM me on the social medias at obscure history pod, just about wherever obscure history podcast on Instagram. Um, or obscurehistorypod at gmail.com. That's a great way to get a hold of me. If you've got any ideas, questions, concerns, if you want to scream email at me, that's fine too. Um, okay. So before I just go completely off the rails, I'm recording this at about midnight tonight. So you can tell the end of this episode, I have kind of just derailed myself. Okay. So without further ado, I introduce you to Dog Mountain. Uh, They're actually like a friend of a friend, and their music is so good. It ranges kind of through the indie rock folk spectrum. Um, Actually, it really reminds me of Andy Hole from Manchester Orchestra, like, um, and his like folksy solo, like side projects that he has, like Bad Books. Uh, it's so good, guys. Super well-written. The quality is just out of control. It amazes me how many indie artists are out there that just have stellar music that the world just, like, should be listening to right now. So without any further ado, here it is. Better Visions from Dog Mountain. Enjoy. You guys have a nice week. I've got to go to bed because I've got work tomorrow. (laughs) Bye. With half a year on my back, I'm trading strides for leaps to keep myself on my feet, thinking better visions of what our futures could be. I'm thinking better visions of me, thinking better visions of me. I wrote 14 songs and I threw. Oh
breath can't seem to get myself to sing It's harder now than ever to express how much that means to me It's harder now than ever to find release It's harder now than ever, yeah Pass with half of half a year intact on trading Scars for teeth to keep myself on my feet And I'll miss those nights of playing music with my friends And driving 14 days to play each coast and back again And I'll feel better now without that stone on my back A burden bigger than my head could What our futures could be Make all my heavy mountains fall asleep And all my heavy mountains fall asleep I wrote 14 songs and I threw them all away Bored to death can't seem to get myself to sing harder now than ever to express how much that means to me. It's harder now than ever to find peace. It's harder now than ever. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.